Well, it's great to be back together as the Christ Journey family. And if this is your first time with us, I want to encourage you by the final message in what has been a powerful series for us, the making of a man. Whether you're with us at Kindle Campus, Gables Campus, across the nation, around the world, we are praying God's blessing upon you today as we seek to answer the question for the final time. How do I mature as a man to make the kind of choices, good choices that influence the lives of those I love, I lead, and I serve? That's the question we asked as we began the series. We've been learning a lot throughout this series, haven't we guys, about the making of a man. Well, today we come to the final message in the series and the heart of the matter. In time past, if I were to summarize the uh, life of Joseph from the book of Genesis, the Old Testament, I would bring out an inflatable bounce-up punching bag. You know the kind I'm talking about? Where no matter how hard you hit it or how many hits it takes, when it goes down, it just comes back up again and again. That's the life of Joseph, taking a lot of hits, but just keeps coming back. In fact, it's the title of this talk. You can't keep a good man down. I like that. It's clever. It's easy to remember. But on another level, it's only part of the story. It's the tip of a very large iceberg. I mean, that's what we see, but there's an awful lot more going on beneath the surface that we want to attend to. It's like if Joseph is the Energizer Bunny, then where does he get his batteries? You know, I could use some of that. If you're like me, if your life is anything like Joseph's, where the challenges just keep on and the hits just keep on coming, then perhaps you could use some of that bounce back energy as well. Where do you get it? You ever heard this? It's not the size of dog in the fight. It's the size of fight in the dog. Where does Joseph get his fight? I read an article that in sports competition, parents, coaches, and athletes give themselves to finding the secrets to success. Weight training, diet, camps, clinics, mental toughness, understanding the game, studying others that do it well. But the writer said this, the one variable that, may, that trumps them all may well be this, wanting it more. It's called heart that intangible something that keeps an athlete giving it all they've got and whatever comes then results in performance rising above expectation. Laser focus, drive to win that brings resilience in the face of failure and keeps them bouncing back against all odds. We see this in the life of Joseph and we see it today as well in many men's lives, and many women's lives. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago that many of us were riveted watching what's been called one of the best tournament finals matches in the history of professional tennis. 2007, Roger Federer is down two games to none in the fifth and facing break point and yet fought back to overcome Rafael Nadal and win his fifth Wimbledon championship. A commentator on that match said this, in a match like this, you can never count out the heart of a champion. Heart. 
Every story with Joseph that we have studied has taken us deeper into the soul of this man. And today, in the last chapter of Genesis, we arrive at his heart, the living center of his soul, the source from which flows all of his perspective and all of his behavior that has kept him coming back, that makes this man who he is. What makes Joseph the man that he is? Hey, brother, it's the same thing that makes you the man that you are. It's what's going on in his heart. Your heart, it's no exaggeration to say, your heart is the heart of the matter when it comes to being a man. Is that right? Your heart is the heart of the matter when it comes to being a man. Now, let me tell you, Joseph had heart. He had a heart for God. The making of a man means finding your meaning in God. This is the life of Joseph. Joseph found his ultimate meaning for living in relationship with God from his very heart. And then now that truth is distilled down to its essence in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where he says this to his brothers. You intended me harm. You intended to harm me. But God meant it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, if we were to do a spiritual MRI into Joseph's heart, you'd see it right there. Heart for God. What's going on beneath the surface? This guy's got heart. He is drawing his ultimate meaning for his life from God, regardless of what happens. Not not from his, uh, not from his brothers, not from their fears or their suspicions. He's not getting it from others in his life. He's not getting it from his past circumstance. He's not getting his meaning from his present power, his position or his possessions, his successes in life. It's not even from his family tree. I mean, when we pick up the story in Genesis 50, Joseph's dad has died. The family has just made the long trip, 22-day, one-way journey to bury him in Canaan. Dad's now buried, and they're back in Egypt, and the brothers are afraid. They've been afraid a lot in this story. They're still afraid. Here's what they're thinking. Uh, Now that dad's gone, what's going to stop Joseph from exacting revenge for what they've done? Guilt is still haunting them. And Joseph says this, essentially, you still don't understand me, do you? You, Let me tell you about my heart, about where I derive meaning in life. Verse 19, am I in the place of God? In other words, He starts first off, he says, hey, listen, I'm not God. And I don't try to live my life as if I am God or as if I'm the judge. That's not me. There's a lesson right there for some of us. I mean, can I be blunt? You are not God. The sooner you admit that truth, then the better it's going to be for you and those around you. Your judgments are not infallible. Your perspectives are not unquestionable. 
You are a limited human being with limited resources and limited understanding. So you may have multiple degrees. You may have multiple bank accounts. You may come from a name family or a dysfunctional mess, but the, the truth stands, you're not God. Neither am I. You are vulnerable. You are fragile. You are at risk. People can do you harm. Crime can come your way, just like it did to Joseph. And just like his brothers, your feelings can get hurt. And then as a result, you can make poor decisions and you can say things you don't mean. You can do things you wish you could undo. And sometimes, you know what? You just flat out sin. Am I right? You're not God. You, you make foolish, destructive decisions in rebellion against God as if you are God, the God of your own life, or you come down on somebody else's life as if you are God. Where Joseph, the first thing Joseph says is, you know, I really don't overrate myself as if I'm somehow God. I know better. In my life, I am not in the place of God. What I'm hearing here is the scripture saying, the making of a man in earnest begins when you learn how to tell the truth. You're not the master of your own fate. You're not the captain of your own destiny. You are not God. And in his next statement, we see that there are other vying for that role. Verse 20, you intended to harm me. In other words, you're behaving like human beings trying to be God. This is like what we're want to do. We get jealous, we get proud, vengeful, full of heart. You sold me out. You literally took money for my life. And then you handed me over to strangers. And listen, that was an improvement on the original plan. You remember the first plan? You wanted to kill me? Remember that one? Seriously? You were gonna kill me? It's like if there were a pop-up bubble coming from Joseph in this statement, listing all the harm that they had intended, that's what would be in it. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. Actually, I looked up the word meant here. It doesn't mean God caused this stuff to happen. It means God put meaning into it. The brothers were intending harm, but God, Joseph says, God puts meaning in it. Joseph says, you know, I've found a greater intender than you. And, and as I did, I discovered that God is the ultimate meaning maker in my life. And this is what I've learned through all the years and all of my suffering. Everything I've been through, something that I've learned the most, this is the last part of verse 20, is that God is in the saving business. The meaning that God brings is saving. Part of the good that he is meaning into my life is being done even as we speak right now, the saving of many lives. The intention of evil was to take life. You sold me out. You threw me away. But in honoring God as God and following God and worshiping God, he's the writer of my life story. He's the master of my life. My Lord and my God, I've discovered something really deep. And it's been going on beneath the surface inside of me. It's that God saves 
that God wants to save lives, that God can bring meaning to life, even in the face of sinful, wicked, falling, betraying, sinful human intention. You intended me harm. Let's don't pretend here. But God put meaning into it. Can I bring you into the meaning? And here's why I don't have the need for revenge. Because my heart is full of the God who saves. Verse 21, he says, so don't be afraid. I'm gonna help take care of you and your families, your kids. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you save them. And then he spoke kindly to them. It's as if he's saying, you know, God's gracious dream for me, here's what I've learned as the dreamer that I used to be. God's gracious dream for me meant that I could grow to know him and his heart, even through the things that I have suffered. I didn't see it coming, but something has happened. Those things that have happened to me have resulted in something happening in me, in my heart, and it is so much bigger than the pain that you intended. I know you intended to harm me, but oh my God, God, oh my God, is doing something. What I've discovered is that my life is not just a pinball, like a pinball in the machine that is slamming me and cramming me by cruel circumstance here and there, that I'm not just a helpless feather on the wind like in Forrest Gump. No, that a larger life script is being played out in my life because of my God and it's full of depth, and it's full of meaning, it's full of heart. I don't know how many of you had to memorize like I did in high school, I wanted to take an English or lit, and uh, Shakespeare, you know the speech from Shakespeare's Macbeth, life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Macbeth at the time, the crisis was so dark at hand in his life that all he could see was meaninglessness, absurdity, emptiness, despair, the feeling of being hollow and desperate. That's where the ideation of suicide usually dwells. T.S. Eliot had a poem called Hollow Men about people who uh, have shape but no form. They have shade but no color. They have gesture without motion. They have life without meaning. And that's why he calls them hollow. They are hollow because they have no heart. So guys, I want to say to you, you know what, this, this lesson through Joseph and this message today especially, this is not just one of those halftime locker room pep talks. Hang in there, go get them. No, this is life and death. This one is A, go through the motions of life as mere existing, or B, plug into the power of life change from the God who made me and can save me. Your heart is the heart of the matter when it comes to being a man. The making of a man is, build, is about building heart. 
What's going on in your heart? How do you develop heart? Well, Joseph shows us. It happens in suffering. That's one of the whys behind it. It happens through behaving like you believe God is at work even when it doesn't look like it or feel like it. So through suffering, through behaving like God is at work, and then it happens through holding on to God's dream no matter what. One of the fascinating mysteries of Scripture are the parallels that are seen between the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis, and Jesus. Now, I'm not the first to see them, but they're uncanny. I just want to list them real quickly for you. Each is a well-beloved favored son. Each is envied and hated by his brothers. Each is sold out for a few pieces of silver. Both are given over to die. Both come forth to new life, one from prison, one from the tomb. Both are giving positions of supreme power. Joseph as prime minister over Egypt, Jesus as king of kings at the right hand of God. Both proved to be deliverer and redeemer, one rescued by, or who rescued the brothers by whom he had been hated and betrayed, and the other able to save completely those who come to God through him. Joseph looks across, across time to see his bones buried in the promised land. Jesus looked across time into eternity to the time when those in the grave would hear his voice and rise. Joseph, biblically, is the first man of God to introduce the Savior motif into the Bible story. Jesus is the God-man who brings the Savior to all who believe. Do you believe? Is he the savior of your heart? What's going on in your heart? Your heart is the heart of the matter when it comes to being a man. And when God's heart to save fills Joseph's heart, ah, oh, he has a new one. It's not a heart of revenge. It's not a heart of withering retreat. It's a heart of redeeming grace. He has a heart to save. His heart isn't just a heart to, he doesn't want to, this isn't about getting, don't get rich. It's not a heart to get mad. It's not a heart to get even. It's not a heart to get high. It's not a heart to get laid. It's not a heart to get back. It's a heart to save. And we see it at work in many lives. Jesus said this, the son of man, came to save what was lost. If you're wondering where Jesus got his heart to save, it's from the saving God. But Hebrews 5.8 tells us this, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Suffering? Yeah, that's where Jesus got it. He also, we also see him behaving as if he believed God was at work, even when it didn't look like it or feel like it, like the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. Not my will, but yours be done. God, I'm trusting you for something bigger. And then we've seen Jesus and Joseph both do it, develop heart through suffering, develop heart through behaving like they believe God is at work in spite of what things look like, and then holding on to God's dream no matter what. Doesn't it make sense that you and I are going to develop heart the same way? Through suffering, through believing, behaving like you believe God is at work in spite of what it looks like, 
and through holding on to God's dream no matter what. How do you do that? It's a matter of heart. You got to guard your heart. What do I mean? The bad stuff, you got to keep out. The good stuff, you got to keep in. You got to watch what you believe, what you think, what you say, what you do. You got to live with your whole heart. That's what we see Joseph doing. Joseph, no matter, no matter what happens, he doesn't lose heart. Joseph serves wholeheartedly. Joseph is a wholehearted man. God, make me one of those. I want to be one of those, Lord. A wholehearted man. There is no half-hearted Joseph in this story. And brothers, God intends there be no half-hearted man in yours. That you live it all. And you live it all the way that you guard your heart and that you serve wholeheartedly. Now, if you Google heart, you know, what, what does heart mean? Yahoo's answer, best answer according to Yahoo for having heart, says this, you do not give up in the face of adversity and then you do things larger than yourself. Heart. That fits Joseph, and God wants that to fit you too. Even in a world of disaster and disease and of injustice and abuse and of concentration camps and cancer and political killings and volcanoes and floods and anything else that hell wants to unleash on this world, he's saying this, how can we deal? Where do we find meaning in all of this madness? Joseph says, find your meaning in God. God can put good meaning even into these times, into the heart of your life. Throughout the story, Joseph uh, doesn't really do a lot of God talk. He doesn't use God's name in vain. He doesn't show off with it. But when he does mention the Lord, it's from the heart. This is one of those places. It comes from a deep, Deep, a deep time well spent with God. So some of us are wondering, you know, did God send that bad thing to my life? And we say, why would God do this to me? Did God send that affair? Did God cause that divorce? Did God make that storm? You know, they call it acts of God. Did God bring that sinkhole or that devastation or that abuse or that disease? People say, why did God do this to me? As if God somehow made the mess that we're in. That's not my belief. Jesus said, there's none good but one. That's God. God doesn't cause evil. That's my belief but God can meet you in it. That's what Joseph said. God didn't cause this, but God put meaning in it. In your dungeon, in your famine, in your betrayal, in your divorce, in your situation, God can redeem it. God doesn't cause the bad, but he can put meaning into it for good. And God can bring that goodness right into your heart where you will then not be defined by your circumstances or by the treatment of others or even by your personal feelings. You will be defined by God. This is his intention. And then from his heart to save, coming alive in you, offer forgiveness and extending that grace to others in a world in need of his saving work. I came across a story I want to share 
of violinist virtuoso Yitzhak Perlman from November 18, 1955. The writer, uh, Jack Reamer, I think is how you say his name, says, if you've ever been to a Perlman concert, then you know that getting on stage is no small achievement for him. He's been stricken with polio since he was a child. He has braces on both legs and he walks with the aid of crutches. And to see him walk across the stage one step at a time is a painful, slow, and awesome sight. He walks painfully yet majestically until he reaches his chair and then he sits down slowly and, and uh, puts his crutches on the floor. Then he undoes the clasps on his legs and, uh, and tucks one foot back and the other foot forward. And then head, head, he reaches down, picks up the violin, puts it under his chin and nods to the conductor and proceeds to play. By now the audience is used to this ritual. They sit quietly while he makes his way across the stage and, uh, and then they remain reverently silent while he undoes the clasps on his legs and they wait until he is ready to play. But this time, the writer says, something, something went wrong. Just as he finished the first few bars, one of the strings on the violin broke. And you could hear it snap. It went off like gunfire all across the room. And there was no mistaking what the sound meant. There was no mistaking for what he now had to do. People who were there that night, the writer says, thought to themselves, well, we figured that he would have to get up, put on the clasp again, put out the crotches and limp his way across stage, go back, find another violin or find another string. And then, but he didn't. Instead, he waited a moment, and then he closed his eyes. And then he signaled the conductor to begin again. And the orchestra began and he played from where he had left off. He played with such passion and such power and such purity that they had never heard before. And of course, anyone knows that it's impossible to play a symphonic work with just three strings. You know it, I know it, but that night, Yitzhak Perlman refused to know it. You could see him modulating and changing and recomposing the piece in his head. At one point, it sounded like he was detuning the strings to get sounds from them that they had never made before. And when he finished, there was an awesome silence in the room. And then people rose and they, they cheered and this extraordinary uh, outburst of applause from every corner of the auditorium. He said, we were all on our feet screaming and cheering and trying to voice our appreciation for what he had done. And then the writer says he smiled and he wiped the sweat from his brow and he raised his bow to quiet us and, and then said, not boastfully, but in a quiet, pensive, reverent tone. You know, sometimes it is the task of an artist to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. What a powerful line that is. The writer says this stayed in my mind ever since. And who knows 
Perhaps this is the definition of life, not just for artists, but for all of us. Here is a man who prepared all of his life to play an instrument of four strings, who all of a sudden, in the middle of an accident, has three. The middle of a concert finds himself with only three. And so he makes music with three strings. And the music he made that night with just three strings was more beautiful, more sacred, more memorable than any that had ever been made before when he had four strings. So perhaps our task in this shaky, fast-changing, bewildering world in which we live is to make music. At first, with all that we have, and then with all that we have left. That's about living with heart, living wholeheartedly. Brothers, your heart is the heart of the matter when it comes to being a man. And our brother, Joseph, from his wholehearted life is saying this, whatever else you get in life, get God. Whatever else you do in life, do life God's way. Whatever else you become in life, whatever else you may be in life, be a man of God. And then you will have reason, as Joseph did, to those in his life. You can say to those in your life, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Heavenly Father that you are a God who saves and that it is still pleasing you to reach into the hearts of men and raise up those who will join you in your saving work to save our children, to save our marriages, to save our families, to save our, our nation, our future, our world. Lord, we pray you would grant us hearts that are tuned to yours and that whatever it is we have lost, that you will teach us how to make music with what we have left. And especially this day, we pray for those who are saying, could God be with me? Yes, brother, sister, yes. Does God know my problems? Yes, more than you know. Could God forgive my sins? Yes, all the way, over and above. Could God use me to make a, yes, to make a difference, to change the world? And it can begin today by letting God introduce himself to you as savior through his son. Lord Jesus, would you come into my life today and be my savior? Forgive my sins Bring your life into my life. I receive the gift of salvation that you purchased for me in your death on the cross. And I ask, Lord, that you now make me the person you would have me become as I make my prayer in your name. Now, our heads still bowed just for a moment. If you ask God to save you in that prayer and would allow me to 
the privilege of asking his blessing upon your next steps of faith, I'm gonna ask you just to raise your hand for a moment wherever you're joining us. Online, you can click the orange banner right there on the screen. We're praying for you, Kendall Campus, Gables Campus. Lord Jesus, for every hand that's raised that represents a heart that's opened, would you show yourself mighty to save in a personal way that assures them that you are with them, you have forgiven them, and now the new journey begins. And we thank you as we make our prayer in your name. Amen.